Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. The pandemic that is sweeping the world has raised questions about about a lot of industries, but in particular, the insurance industry as a growing number of businesses seek for some compensation. And one insurance CEO saying that this is going to be the worst situation for insurers uh, in recent history. Joining us now, we are so pleased to say Ted Mathis, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of New York Life, based in New York City. Ted, thank you so much for being with us. I was talking about Lloyd's of London and the chief executive officer coming out and saying that the insurance industry could face losses that are the worst in recent memory, worse than 9-11-2001 and worse than the Katrina hurricane in the United States. Do you agree with that assessment? Uh, uh, good morning, Lisa. What, I w- what I'd say is this, is that there's no question that for all different kinds of insurers, uh, New York Life is a life insurer. This presents some unique challenges. In many ways, uh, for life insurers, it's a bit of a, of a triple challenge. You have the fact that um, the prospect of substantial mortality claims as a result of the pandemic. Uh, you have the significant market dislocations that are occurring, um, and life insurers are very large, long-term investors. And then then you have the impact that all businesses have to, uh, today to some degree, which is the operational impact on how do you navigate a world where, uh, for most of us, I know New York Life, about 96% of our working population was in offices with 4% working from home before this crisis. And today, that's completely flipped. So those challenges are there. But the life insurance industry in particular is really built for these kinds of situations to be able to provide security for people in these highly uncertain times. So, Ted, what would you characterize would be the the biggest risk to your business model, maybe the business model of life insurers in general as we go through this just extraordinary time? Uh, this the life insurance business is a highly relationship oriented personal business. We work with people on protecting what matters most to them, and in a sense, that has been built over decades by people building individual relationships in what we've often described as a face to face environment. Uh, today, uh, we all have to essentially. Um, occupy a a world we didn't anticipate where social distancing makes face-to-face interaction extremely limited. Um, What we are having to do is navigate how to take the depth of the relationships we've built over the years and translate them into this virtual environment. All of us, as we are here, I'm talking to you today from uh, my basement on a phone as opposed to sitting with you uh, inside of a studio. Um, That is something that I am highly confident we can navigate, but in many ways, um, that is one of the bigger challenges today, um, but leveraging the human relationships. Yeah. Ted, uh, New York Life Insurance Company is the largest life insurance company in the United States, one of the largest life insurers in the world. And it's also a very big investor. And I'm wondering, as an investor in a lot of assets, how much do you think this pandemic will change the focus more to companies doing the right thing rather than just doing the right thing for their balance sheets? Uh, I think that's an excellent question. What I would say is this, is what I'm, I'm proud about is the fact that New York Life actually uh, is the largest mutual life insurance company. This is our, we actually entered this year our 175th year. 
And I think that this is a time in a calling for all companies um, to really uh, dig deep and ask, what is the essence of their mission? What is it? How do they define themselves? And it has to be more than your bottom line and more than your balance sheet. So at New York Life, we knew that we nobody could predict this kind of pandemic occurring, but we knew that they did occur. We have the history to know we've been through yellow fever epidemics, other world wars, financial crises, the 2008, 2009 financial crisis. And throughout all of those, what we've been able to do is make sure that we can live up to the promises we make. And that's because of the inherent value proposition that's embedded within the company. So we were able to come out and say to all of our employees that we're not going to have any layoffs. That creates unbelievable certainty in a world of great uncertainty. For the 12,000 men and women that represent us as agents out there, we were able to say to them that we can provide an economic floor to them and help them navigate this world of unprecedented you know, social distancing. Um, and, in, and essentially, because we have made decisions with a long-term orientation, we don't have to make changes to our overall asset portfolio that backs up those guarantees. And fundamentally, even for our policy owners, many of whom are worried about they've lost their job or they're worried about losing their job, it's an opportunity for them to be able, even to, if they have to not make certain premium payments, we've given them the flexibility to defer those payments as we try to figure out where we can find some stability through this crisis. So I think that calling on that value proposition and being able to recognize that this is at, at its foremost a human tragedy and it's an opportune time for institutions to lean into their empathy and lean into their humanity. And that's one of the reasons right. why uh, we have uh, essentially now uh, with partnered with Cigna to launch the Brave of Heart Fund to help the families of healthcare workers. That's interesting. I was looking at that, uh, the Brave of Heart Fund partnering with Cigna Fund will provide financial and emotional support for the families of healthcare workers and volunteers uh, nationwide. That's a wonderful uh, offering. Ted Mathis, thanks so much for joining us. Ted is chairman and CEO of New York uh, Life. This is Bloomberg Markets with Lisa Abramowitz and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Well, as the curve of new virus patients begins to bend Everybody's looking towards treatments, potentially vaccines, and they're looking towards big pharma. They're looking towards the biotech companies to deliver, uh, to get a sense of kind of where we are on that path. We welcome our good friend Sam Fazelli. He's a director of research for Bloomberg Intelligence in Europe, but more importantly, his day job is he's a senior healthcare analyst. He's been following the pharma industry for decades. Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we appreciate it. Gilead had some odd news yesterday. I know you're on top of that as, you know, again, investors continue to look for these healthcare companies to deliver uh, vaccines. What happened to Gilead yesterday? Hey, Paul. Very nice to talk to my old friend, Paul. Um, thank you for having me on. Well, basically what happened was there was a leaked um, uh, bit of data on a WHO website that um, – perhaps wasn't even completed in terms of its analysis, and uh, some people saw that, I think it was the Financial Times, and they, then the whole world knew about it, thanks to social media. What basically is going on here is that that's a trial that was out of China, and um, was in pretty severe patients, and it showed uh, no evidence of activity based on what I have heard. I've not seen the actual uh, paper myself. 
So the, the reality, though, is that these are, these are clinical trials. There are many of them. This is just one, and it's a small one, out of a large number of trials that are going on. So very difficult to just read something out of one trial that fails. Sam, very good point. The idea that this uh, trial may or may not be valuable to determine whether or not remdesivir actually is effective. However, what it did highlight was how much the market has a baked in assumption that there will be some sort of remedy or remedies in the near future that will at least mitigate the death rate. We saw the entire market fall yesterday after this study came out or was published, however uh, problematic it was. How faulty do you think those assumptions are based on the pipeline of drugs and vaccines that you currently are studying? Yeah, but look, I mean, we, we, all, we all need hope. I mean, that's what humans live on, essentially, right? Um, but at the end of the day... I thought you said we all need help, and I was like, yeah, that too, but carry on. <laughs> no, so I think everyone's hopeful. Everyone's hoping, and the pharma industry is trying its best to, to throw everything they've got, either in their cupboards, which is what basically some pharma companies have done, and also what they've got on the market. So, but at the end of the day, we're trying to solve a disease that we've only really known about for six months. I mean, look, we've known about cancer for decades. And sometimes it takes time to a decade to find the treatment for a cancer therapy. So infectious disease is a little bit easier because the target is easy to test in a test tube, but, at the, but you still have to get the trials done. And I really do worry about um, people getting too hopeful on some of this and, and re- re- really think that, that they should just, everyone should just step back and let the science roll out and then, and then we judge as, as these therapies report. So, Sam, I know you spend a lot of time talking to you, the companies that you cover in the pharma industry, you're, the biotech in, industry as well. You talk to a lot of smart investors who are MDs and PhDs like yourself. Um, is it What's the feeling that the timetable – because what we've heard out of the White House uh, and from others is that 12 to 18 months for a vaccine and – What's the feeling within you know your community as to the accuracy or potential accuracy of that time frame? So I, th- I think it's possible, as I've said before, if all the stars align. And unfortunately, though, we know that in clinical development, the stars don't always all align. Um, but it all depends what you want out of a vaccine. Um, you, you, if you want a vaccine that's not been fully tested yet, but you know induces an immune a response that might be sufficient to protect, you could always go and create a ring of, of, of vaccinated people within the, um, say, healthcare community that you want to protect first. Those are the sorts of um, strategies that, that, that epidemiologists and governments can use. But if you really want a vaccine that you are as sure as you can be, is safe giving it to healthy individuals like you and I, um, then you just have to spend the time to test it and test it in large numbers. And that will take more than 12 to 18 months. We just had Sanofi's CEO on talking about um, one of the things that nobody seems to want to talk about is the volume that these vaccines require if you really hit it right. That's a very big challenge. Um, So, you know, and, and they're working on it, right? 
Well, when you talk about the volume needed, I also wonder the international effort and how much cooperation there has been. Is there an international effort to get a high volume of vaccines to the public, to the masses as quickly as possible with nations working together? Or is it a really uh, case by case kind of situation? I think I haven't seen evidence of nation nations working together. I've certainly seen evidence of companies working together. So a perfect example of it is Sanofi and GlaxoSmithKline in Europe. And we just heard today that Johnson & Johnson has teamed up with emergent biosolutions for access to manufacturing. And that they need to do that. Because I can tell you, when a vaccine works well, as we have seen in the case of Merck with Gardasil and GlaxoSmithKline in Shingrix, they quickly hit capacity issues. Both companies are working for the next four years to increase capacity for those vaccines. So God help us, if one of these vaccines really works well, everyone's going to scramble to get it. That would be interesting to see how the nations behave. Sam Fazelli, thank you so much for being with us. Sam Fazelli, Director of Research uh, for the EMEA region for Bloomberg Intelligence, also a very long-time analyst of the pharmaceutical and healthcare industries. And I will just say, Paul, I was reading an essay by uh, Joseph Stiglitz of Columbia yesterday, which was talking about the need for more coordination in coming up with some of these vaccines and sort of the elimination of the current IP framework. Interesting idea. What an historic week for oil in terms of volatility. We had the May contract earlier this week actually trading in negative territory for uh, the first time. Supply-demand dynamics are incredibly challenging right now. To get an update, we welcome Dr. Ariel Cohen, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council, also a founding principal of international market analysis based in Washington, D.C. Dr. Cohen, thanks so much for joining us. Help us put into context kind of what we experienced this week when we're looking at WTI crude. First of all, we should not focus on this one May uh, futures contract that uh, went into the negative territory. This was a unique situation where we ran out of storage capacity. We see WTI back into the 17 range. We see Brent in 21 range. Uh, it is a huge blow for the American uh, shale oil patch. But once the economy starts recovering, uh, I went over the future uh, futures projection. We are uh, going to the 30s uh, towards 2022. So it's it's little little help yeah. for for the oil for the oil fields right now. But uh, as the economy uh, it will uh, go into recovery territory, hopefully by the fall, uh, you'll see oil going into the high 20s, 30s, etc. Oh, wait, wait, hold on a second. So you said uh, they'll be in the 30s in 2022. Are you expecting oil prices to remain suppressed for that many years? Well, the question is, what is suppressed when you have so much oil slushing around? You have the U.S. production going up and up. You have the Saudis, the Russians. You have major oil producers who are not selling nearly as much as they could. Iran. Uh, Venezuela, uh, Libya, etc. And you have objective structural changes where you have more and more electric cars. Uh, you have, um, this is less of uh, immediate impact on oil. You have uh, renewables uh, still going up. That's more affecting gas. Uh, but uh, basically, uh, as long as you don't have robust economic growth, 
and massive demand uh, coming from places like China, India, Africa, uh, and less so Europe. Uh, you will not go back to oil in the 70s or 80s uh, unless some catastrophic um, catastrophic things happen in the Middle East. So, Ariel, this is important because the Kansas City Fed has come out with a study showing that 40% of U.S. shale producers would become insolvent if oil prices did not rise above the $30 mark. Uh, and this would be by the end of this year. I'm just wondering, first of all, whether you agree with that assessment, but second of all, what President Trump could actually do to support some of these companies, given the fact that oil prices are unlikely to rise meaningfully in the next month or two? Uh, correct. In the next month or two, they'll probably go into the low to mid-20s, um, unless we have a major event uh, such as uh, an approval uh, of a, uh, a, an effective vaccine. And that will indicate that by the fall, early 2021, uh, we probably have uh, a robust growth in the economy. Uh, as for the shale patch, look, uh, these, um, uh, these oil uh, patches um, are if, uh, economically efficient, uh, depends on the field, depends on the well. Uh, it varies. Uh, if the, the smaller producers go belly up, the bigger producers have deep enough pockets, uh, the excess of the BPs, to pick them up and have this capacity. It doesn't mean they will produce at 25, but these resources will be available. And you know, to my, to my, based on my research, 30 and up, 35 and up, um, the, the oil uh, shale uh, wells, oil shale fields, are economically effective. Uh, so I totally understand and feel the pain of people who lose their jobs and lose their businesses. On the other hand, remember, creative destruction in a market economy uh, has this Darwinian process in which some of these companies will be picked up by uh, bigger and more aggressive players. So, Dr. Cohen, I wonder if you could help me with the strategy being pursued by the Saudis in terms of yesterday in the Russia cut supply by 9.7 million barrels, but that doesn't seem to be enough given the, the demand destruction we've seen. Are they just strategically trying to push the U.S. shale operators just completely out of business and to get the U.S. out of the uh, oil business? The original idea of putting U.S. shale out of business was Russian. Uh, specifically the, C the chairman and CEO of the Russian state-owned behemoth called Rosnev, uh, Igor Sechin. Uh, he was running around with this idea for a long time. Uh, they made their move in March. Uh, the uh, oil talks fell apart. But what you see now, the Saudis are selling their oil at a great discount in Europe. So it is as much a struggle to take the market share away from the Russians as it is to put our guys uh, in the shale pitch out of business. So just uh, quickly here, Ariel, going forward, do you think that Saudi Arabia and Russia are going to cut a meaningful additional amount of the oil produ produced, given the fact that their current cuts that they've promised that still haven't gone into effect are considered insignificant compared to the lack of demand that we're seeing? Well, let's take a look at supply and demand. Uh, the supply uh, was at about 90 plus 
uh, million barrels a day. It collapsed by about 30%. Uh, so 30% of, of 90 is 30. Uh, they're cutting 20. They're talking about cutting 20. Uh, so the marginal price may go up, but we don't see it yet in the future contract. Uh, I would say let's wait till May and see how these cuts are uh, being implemented. But it's important to remember, historically, every time OPEC agreed on cuts, everybody cheated. Everybody's selling a tanker, a tanker or, or two or five from the back door, so to speak. I got across my desk more uh, offers of selling oil at deep uh, discounts over the years that I can, you know, I can count on you. <laughs> Ariel Cohen, you live an interesting life. I've missed those offers to buy cheap tankers of oil. They are not crossing my desk. They are crossing yours. Ariel Cohen, thank you so much for being with us. Ariel Cohen, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council, also founding principal of International Market Analysis, uh, joining us from Washington, D.C. Paul, are you getting those? I am not. Occasionally, you'll get that email uh, looking to if I want to, you know, buy some barrels of oil, but not recently. I, you know, seriously. You, you would, yeah, you would think that that we'd be getting them all the time because nobody can sell their oil right now. Yeah, although you can't just store it in your kids' room. I've looked into it. You, right. you just can't. It, it's it's not particularly safe. I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that ACS would come and and file a complaint. One of the more, I think. Ominous developments from this coronavirus uh, really taking shape over the last several days has been uh, the security of the food supply chain within the United States, particularly uh, on the beef and and pork. Uh, Michael Hertzer, agriculture reporter for Bloomberg, uh, joins us now. He's based in Chicago. So, Michael, I've seen about some news coming out of Bloomberg News, about a quarter of American pork production, maybe 10 percent of beef output has now been shuttered. And farmers are actually slaughtering their own pigs. What's going on here and how bad as could this get? I guess we don't know how bad it's going to get yet. Um, Some of these plants that have closed, there's been eight major kind of pork and beef plants that have closed uh, across kind of the central U.S. And one of the plants in in Greeley, Colorado, is actually restarting. So I guess it, it will depend on just how quickly the workers can get better and then the plants can resume operations and then they can start to wrap their their arms around the the sick employees. So just to sort of put this into perspective, what's been going on is that farmers usually rely on meat processing plants to slaughter and process the meat and then distribute that to uh, restaurants and to big box uh, grocery stores. What's happened is Tyson and a number of other plants, there have been illnesses that have forced the plants to shut down, correct? And as a result, there hasn't been the slaughtering and processing uh, capabilities. So farmers are just facing an overpopulation of their animals and slaughtering them themselves. Do we have a sense of how common that is for farmers to be doing that? Usually, you know, if there's there's a sick animal that will get culled, but to actually have to cull either market-ready animals that are kind of at the desired weight for the processing or to, to kill off the younger animals, that's, it's quite rare, and it, it hasn't happened, you know, at, at any scale for years. Um, we're kind of being told that this is still relatively isolated, um, but it, it could get worse if, if uh, the, you know, situation at the plant doesn't improve, and Part of the problem is, is that just like the grocery stores, the meat plants, they, they kind of need a, a ready supply of animals moving through there pretty quickly. And the animals, 
you know, they're, they're moving out of the barns and then there's another, you know, group of animals coming into the barn and into the processing plant. So it's kind of a just-in-time inventory and, and that's really what's kind of under pressure right now. So, Michael, are we seeing higher beef and pork prices uh, at the supermarket now? If not now, is that something we should be planning on? If you're reading your sale papers, which kind of are, you know, the, the papers that come in the mail or are dropped on your doorstep, uh, you can still probably see some sales for some meat items. Uh, you know, supplies going into the pandemic were, were nearly a record. And um, so the retail level probably hasn't seen quite the pressure yet outside of maybe some, some gouging that, that people may be experiencing. But the, the market, the wholesale market, which we have a, a gouge every day from, from the USDA, has been surging for both pork and beef. And those prices will, will eventually transfer down to the consumer. Michael, do we have a sense of the proportion of meat processing plants that have had to close as a result of worker illness? We had one of the major kind of unions estimating that for pork it was about 25%. Um, we're hearing, you know, maybe 15 to 25%, and, and again, on, on the beef, about 10% um, so far. And some plants have started to, to get closer to resuming operations, um, although there has you know, Tyson shut down two plants on pork and one on beef just this week. So, Michael, are, are processing plants, are they geographically dispersed throughout the country, or are they kind of in a particular geography that may be more at risk to the virus? Some of the sticking points have been like, they they'll generally are in more rural areas, but the, the workforce is, is uh, much of it are immigrants, and some of those people, you know, will travel, obviously, and, and we're traveling prior to kind of the lockdowns. And so it's, you know, it's, it's just like the world. It's these plants, they could be in the middle, middle of nowhere, but the workers, you know, travel here and there and, and, uh, and then concentrate at the plant or, or sometimes because they are immigrants or maybe not having the most highest paying jobs, they do live in, in closer quarters than, than might be ideal for, for something like this pandemic. Michael Hertzer, thank you so much for being with us. Michael Hertzer, agriculture reporter for Bloomberg News, talking about something that's gotten a lot of attention, the possibility of a meat shortage, in particular pork, as a number of these meat processing plants close down in the wake of the coronavirus. Other people saying that we're far away away from a meat shortage. Nonetheless, what it highlights to me, Paul, is the incredibly complex supply chain, especially for something that is just-in-time type of fulfillment, such as the meat industry. Yeah, that's that was new news to me from Michael, kind of that just-in-time aspect to it. And, you know, you just get a, a little bit of a d- d- disruption and it flows through the system. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.